Good morning, and welcome to Awaken. That's so funny. I remember, I was going to say, I remember singing that song in our choir, but I'm not that old, like when it first came out type singing it in the choir, just kind of like, you know. And for those of you who don't believe that I can actually sing, I I don't sing very well. I was kind of bass in a choir where my songs were muffled. But um, gosh, that that brought back some really cool memories. Anyway, good morning and welcome to Awaken. Uh, My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken Church. And we are in the midst of a series going through the book of Ephesians, week by week, chapter by chapter. But that is not all. So in one of the unique things that we're doing over the course of this series is you're going to hear five different teachers, preachers, whatever word you might want to use, take us through this book. Your four pastors and one of our deacons, Stephen Freeman. So five different teachers, five different personalities, five different perspectives and gifts, all kind of winding in. And I, don't, I can't remember the last time, if ever, that we've done something like this where we just kind of jam that type of variety in uh, one series. And it's exciting because I think what it does is allows the Word of God just to come to life in different ways. And we began last week when my co-pastor, Andrew, Uh, introduced us to the book of Ephesians by looking through chapter one. And in chapter one, what Paul teaches is that Jesus is the one who redeems and sustains our lives and redeems and sustains our relationships. And then that God's love is great and rich. And as I shared just a moment ago in the prayer, right, that he's given us every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, every single one we have in Christ. And in light of that truth, Paul prays for us that we would understand the greatness and vastness of God's power demonstrated to us. And this week, we're going to follow up on that exhortation by jumping into Ephesians chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, feel free to open up. I'm going to be, I've got the verses up there as well in New Living Translation, and we're going to go through it. Starting in verse 1. Once you were dead... Because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live this way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. You were once dead. That's what the Bible is saying. You used to be dead. All of us used to be dead. Do you remember what being dead felt like? Some of you became Christians when you were really young, so that's something there I I don't even remember. In fact, I thought I was a Christian from the moment I was born. I've been a Christian for so long. Others of you, before you became a Christian, you still thought of yourself as a pretty good person, uh, pretty well-behaved. You followed the rules. So even after becoming a Christian, you're like, well, I didn't ever see that huge a difference between my old life and my new life. And then there's the rest of you. You remember what it was like before Jesus, B.C., and you weren't proud of it. Not only has he changed your life, but you can see evidence of him changing your life every single day in so many different ways. Here's the thing, though. When Paul is talking about this idea that we were once dead, he isn't talking about how good or how bad we were before Jesus. He is talking about what once animated you. 
right? He's talking about the things that used to make you feel good, the things that used to bring you to life. And in your old life, in your life before Jesus, the thing that animated you was sin. That's what got you mobilized. That's what got you up. That's what got you going during the course of the day. And so you were under the authority of the devil. Now, you might not have thought about it that way, but what Paul is preaching here is that was your reality, whether you understood or that or not. You were in sin, devoid of any spiritual life. And as a result, you were before Jesus, all of us, before Jesus, we were offensive to God. So uh, most of you know I went to graduate school at the University of Florida for marriage and family counseling. And in grad school, what we used to do was not only see clients, but we would also go through case studies. And, and one of the uh, clients that we studied was this couple. Uh, the man was a farmer. And so they came in for marriage difficulty. And the man was a farmer. And you could tell they hadn't been married very long, but he loved his wife very much. And his wife was a younger woman, beautiful, but she was not a farmer. She hadn't grown up on a farm. She was more a city girl. They met in college, and they decided to get married. And the reason, the problem they have coming into counseling had nothing to do with love, because she loved her husband very much. He loved her very much. It was about uh, intimacy. And she did not want to be intimate with her husband. And as you can Imagine that was, that was a problem in their marriage. And so as the counselor and as we're taking the time to get to know the family and get to know and understand what, or not the family, the couple, and get to know what was going on, what the presenting problem was, what we found was that uh, obviously the husband really wanted to and the wife found the husband attractive. There weren't any physical problems. There weren't, the problem was in how he approached her at night. He was a big guy. He was a hairy guy. He was a rather strong-smelling guy who wasn't helped by his work on the farm. And so after realizing that this might be related to some of the problems they were having, we had a session with the husband alone. And in that time, we took the time to go through with the husband that, hey, here's what we want you to do. Every single night, after work, no matter how clean or how dirty you might be, you're going to thoroughly shower. And we're talking about a shower. We're not talking about the three to four to five minute showers that you're used to. We're talking about a minimum of 20 minutes. And if you're a guy, that's like, that's eternity in a shower. So 20 minutes minimum in the shower. And then after coming out of the shower, you're going to put on a body spray chosen by your wife. And I'm perfectly serious here. So in addition to that, uh, when you shave, it is not only your facial hair that you need to keep trimmed, but parts of the rest of you as well. In particular, those armpits of yours, which were, wow, don't miss those, right? And as you can imagine, when we're in this session, we're sharing these things. He thought it was a joke at first. He didn't really understand. He had this bewildered look, and then he realized we were being serious, and then he got offended. And he's like, Wait, hold on. This is not why I came into counseling. I didn't come into counseling for you to tell me how I need to be hygienically. And, and so they were like, look, do you love your wife? Of course I love my wife. And you told us you'd be willing to do anything to fix this marriage. Is that correct? Yes. Are you still willing to do anything to fix this marriage and to make this marriage better? He's like, of course. I love my wife. I want to do anything to make this marriage work. And so we said, well, 
this is what it's going to take. And so he didn't see it, but he finally and reluctantly agreed. And once you know it, they rediscovered intimacy. Their marriage problems suddenly got resolved, and he, they never came back into counseling again. Here's the point. This poor husband did not realize that he was offensive to his wife. And that is what Paul is sharing here. Paul is telling us that we used to be the big, hairy uh, guys who wore old t-shirts and didn't like to shower, right? That is how we are to God. I don't know what the female equivalent is of that, so you girls might just have to use your imaginations and exercise. And even if I knew what the female equivalent was, I couldn't say it up here, so that would be wrong. But this is who we are, right? We're the big hairy guys wearing our beer-stained t-shirts, thinking that we should be allowed to do whatever we want, dress how we want, shower whenever we like, not even realizing, thinking mostly about ourselves and what we want, and not even imagining that we might be offensive to everyone around us. And that's what Paul is saying is, guys, you were filthy. You didn't even, you might not have realized it, but you were filthy spiritually, in your minds, in your flesh, and in your spirit, because you're so caught up in doing what you want, even in the midst of the garbage, you did not realize how offensively filthy you were. And that is what your relationship with God before Jesus looked like. And yet, despite all of that, verse four, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing what he's sharing? He said, God has demonstrated his mercy and his grace towards us, right? So that not only would you experience the blessings and joys of what God has for you, but that even future generations will be able to look back and say, wow, this is what God has done. And in doing so, I can trust that he will do that good to me as well. God being rich in mercy and love has given us life. Brothers and sisters, if that idea is not the most transformative and amazing and revolutionary idea that we have ever experienced, then we just don't appreciate how despicable we once were. We were dead. God in his love and mercy has given us life. So I want us to say that together. So right here, I want you all to say, I was dead. Good night. I was dead. Again, I was dead. God in his love and mercy gave me life. Go. God in his love and mercy gave me life. Again, God in his love and mercy gave me life. Verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us 
long ago. So God chose to ignore the smell, the filthiness, the offensiveness of who we are, and has chosen to be in relationship with us nonetheless, and he has made a way through Christ. Better yet, God is the one who cleaned us up. We weren't the ones who got in the shower. Jesus is, or God has poured out his son like a waterfall over us who believe, cleansing us and making us pure. He has raised us up from the dead to seat us beside him. And this act of love is based on nothing we have, we ever have, we ever will do. It is not something that we have earned. It is completely an act of grace. Do you know what grace is? Do you understand what grace means? We have the, most of us probably who grew up in church have the Christian definition of grace, which is God's unmerited favor. But I don't know if that always tells us or fully explains what grace truly is. So a number of years ago at a uh, British conference on religion, there were experts from around the world, from all different faiths, gathered together to discuss and debate the merits of different faiths. And one of the questions that arose was, what belief, if any, is unique in Christianity? And the idea first came up, well, the incarnation, right? God becoming flesh. And then it was like, well, there are religions that believe that gods are in human form and walk among us. So maybe the incarnation isn't a belief unique to Christianity. And then someone else came with the idea, well, how about the resurrection? The idea of Jesus rising from the dead. And they're like, well, maybe that, that specific story is a bit unique. But there are other religions and other faiths that believe that the dead have been risen uh, back to life again. And so the debate continued on and on until C.S. Lewis entered into the room. So that gives you an idea of how long ago this debate was. And for those of you who don't know C.S. Lewis, he's a great theologian and author of a number of different books, including The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which hopefully most of us have read or at least seen the movie. So uh, after coming into the room, C.S. Lewis said, uh, what's all the rumpus about? Because I guess that's how they talked back then in Britain. What's all the rumpus about? And the college his colleagues shared what they were debating, trying to find Christianity's unique contribution to, wor- to the world and to world religions. And instantly, C.S. Lewis replied, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Of all the religions in the world, only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. That's remarkable, isn't it? That every other faith, every religion, that there is a if I then relationship with God. If I do this, if I obey this, then God will Christianity alone stands and says, hey, God's love demonstrated to you comes with no strings attached. When the Bible teaches that it's God's grace that saves us, you cannot truly understand this idea of grace, God's unmerited favor without first understanding law. We're not going to take a long detour into this, but I want to make sure that we get, because when God says it's by grace you've been saved, nothing, that's so different, so contrary to how we're used to living, that I don't want to just gloss over this and assume you guys understand what grace is. And to understand grace, you have to first grasp the idea of law. Law is about justice. Law is about what is fair. Law is about what is appropriate consequences for actions taken. Law is designed to be impartial and applied equally, regardless of your race, gender, orientation, or religious belief. That's theory. I mean, we know sometimes it doesn't, but in theory, that's what law is designed to do. And we are all familiar with the idea of law. Here's the problem with law. Sometimes law is not enough to accomplish good. Right? So an example of that, uh, you have a baby suffocating in a locked car. 
breaking into a locked car that's not yours is a crime, right? But being a human being with compassion says we break into that car to save the baby. We all understand this, right? We understand that it's sometimes okay and appropriate and good to break the law in order to accomplish a greater good. So what do we call that? Let's just call that being human, right? And being human says, yes, I understand that sometimes law is not good enough to accomplish good. And so we act according to conscience to do what is right and to do what is best. That is being human, to realize there are times when exceptions need to be made. So there's law, there's being human, and then there's grace, right? Here's what God's grace looks like. God is a law, and unlike our human laws, God's law is perfect. And God's law says sin leads to death and eternal separation from him, which makes sense because the definition of sin is I have violated God in some way, shape, or form. That is law. God says sin warrants death and eternal separation. So law would say that since all of us have broken God's commands, at some point in our lives, we have all earned or deserve death. Being human says, yes, that is the law, God, but there should be some exceptions, like if the person is really, really good, or if they're really, really, really sorry for what they've done. Are, on a human level, that resonates with us, right? That makes sense. It's like, of course, yeah, God, I understand that's law. It's a good law. You came up with it. But there's got to be exceptions because that's how we tend to think. It's like, you know, saving the baby in a locked car. There's got to be exceptions. But when you try and apply this, you understand now where the difficulty comes up, right? At what point is good good enough? Are we counting sins? Is that what it's going At what point is being sorry being sorry enough? And how bad do you have to be in order to get the bad consequence? So you understand the limitations of this idea of being human. And then there's grace, right? So we take in law, being human, and now grace. And God's grace says, I will still fulfill the law because the law is good. The way I'm going to accomplish that is I'm going to send my innocent son, Jesus, to die in your place. So I will fulfill the law. Death is required for sin. And what Jesus has done is taken our penalty onto himself. And in exchange, he offers us a gift, eternal life with God, something that we do not deserve, something that we have not earned. Jesus taking our penalty in exchange for his reward. That is the story of the gospel. That is grace, unmerited, unearned favor. Nothing we have ever done will accomplish that good, and so God graciously gifts it to us. Grace gives when the person receiving the gift cannot possibly pay you back. Grace helps when the other person is completely helpless. Grace forgives when forgiveness is entirely and completely undeserved and maybe even unasked for. When you understand grace and what grace is, then here's the easy part. It's easy to understand why grace must always be attached to love. Because no other passion, emotion, no other motivation could possibly drive one being to act that way towards another, save love. Love alone could cause you, cause God, right? Cause anyone to do what is completely undeserved for someone who can do nothing to pay you back. And that is why whenever we read about grace, it's always attached to this idea of love as well. And this is what Paul is sharing. 
receive God's love, receive God's gift, but understand it's not a reward. You can in no way, shape, or form earn it. And so as a result, none of us can boast about saving ourselves. Verse 11, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. In the days of the Old Testament, uh, the people of God were those who belonged to a certain race, uh, the Jews. So if you were a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you were an Israelite. You were a Jew. You were counted to be amongst God's people and part of God's family. And if you were not a descendant of that line from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you were considered to be an outsider. And as an outsider, you were excluded from the promises of God. You were excluded from the blessings of God. And you were excluded from the hope of God. Heaven, eternal life, salvation, uh, forgiveness of sins, these were for God's people, the Jews only. And again, what determined you as being a Jew was who your daddy or granddaddy or great, 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 whatever granddaddy was. But then Jesus was sent into the world, right? And Jesus came into the world. And through Jesus, God destroyed the things that separated us from, uh, or separated uh, the Jews from the rest of the world. So he broke down the wall of hostility that was at that time between those who'd been declared God's people's descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rest of us. And so God, in doing so, has created a new people of God. Paul shares in detail what this looks like, starting in verse 14. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles, and basically Gentiles are anyone who is not a Jew, so that's everyone else, into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. And together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So God has, through Christ, given everyone equal access to God. No more division, no more hostility, no more separation. Through Christ, we are all able to join the family of God. And not only that, but God has made peace by uniting these two disparate groups into one. That is incredible. So, how many of you in here are, are immigrants, out of curiosity? All right, there are a few. How many of you are children of immigrants? Okay, a bit more. And then how many of you guys in here have ever visited a foreign country? That, 
Oh, that's good. Okay, so I know, uh, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, I wasn't actually keeping track, but I would say that it would be a great experience for every person in this room at some stage of their lives to know, to visit a foreign country, to, to spend extended time in a foreign country, because I think it's important for all of us to understand what it feels like to be a foreigner. For me, I'm the firstborn son of immigrants. My dad was born in Shanghai, my mom from Taiwan, and they actually came to the United States two years before I was born. So I grew up having a firsthand understanding of what it's like to try and adapt into a culture where that is completely dominated by a different race, different language, the whole nine yards, and how difficult it was to acclimate into that new culture. I remember going to school and the teacher contacting my parents and saying, you need to stop speaking Chinese at home to your son. You need to speak English to him so he can adjust in school. I mean, this was the environment, very different than the environment today, but I grew up remembering things like that. I remember what it feels like to try and fit in and to realize no matter how hard I try, I will never completely fit in because of my face. So there's you know, that, that feeling. And I also know what it's like to, uh, to be a foreigner in a different country. I've, I've not only lived in different countries, but visited a number of different. I, lived, I spent two years in Okinawa, Japan. Uh, I've been in Europe three times. I've visited uh, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, the Philippines. I've been in Honduras, the Bahamas, El Salvador, Dominican Republic, a number of other places, right, that I've had the chance to visit. And so I'm sharing all that just to tell you that for those of you who have not had that experience, let me share with you what it feels like to be a foreigner. It feels awkward. That's what it's like to be a foreigner. It feels like you don't fit in. It feels like everyone around you gets the joke except for you, right? That's what it feels like, and you can't hide. You just know that wherever you go, whatever, whoever you got, you just don't belong. And that is how we were, unless you happen to be a Jew in here, that's how we were with God before Jesus. And through Jesus, God has changed all of that. And he has said that you don't have to feel that way anymore. Ephesians 2.19. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens, along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family, and together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord, and through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So there is now no separation between us and Christ. Before Jesus, so just to give you an idea that uh, the Jews understood that God was always with them because God dwelled in the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, wherever, so wherever they went, that is where God was to them. But they even understand that even back then, there was a separation between God and his people. So the, at the temple, most of the people did not, were not able to approach and enter into the temple. So the temple was a separation from the Jews and the people of God. Only the priests were in the temple. But even in the temple, there was a veil that separated the holiest of holies, which is where God was, from the rest of the priests. So even the priests 
of God, people devoted to serving God, didn't have full access to God. But when Jesus died, that veil was torn apart and destroyed, right? And even soon after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the temple itself was destroyed. In other words, everything that might have served might have hinted to some separation of God and us was destroyed by God, was torn apart. So there's nothing left to separate us from God, not even sin for those who believe. That is the story of the gospel. That is the hope of the gospel. This is the work that God has done, and this is what is being shared throughout the chapter of Ephesians 2, and in many ways throughout the book of Ephesians as well, to give us the confidence of knowing and understanding what has God done for you? What has God done for us? There's nothing that separates us from God, not even sin for those who believe. That is the essence of the philosophical and spiritual conflict that rages in the world today regarding Christianity. On one side, there are faith-filled and faithful Christians who understand that we have been tasked with the responsibility of sharing this good news, sharing this hope with an unbelieving world. Not because we're trying to convert or change or change how people live. We are simply sharing the good news. God has come to say, I want no separation between us. Let's be in this great, amazing love relationship with one another. And the only barrier, in a sense, is your willingness to believe. And then you have the other side, an unbelieving world that has taken that simple message and made it very convoluted, very complicated, and loaded with all these different ideas and terms that I don't believe God ever intended to be a part of it. And so here we are, and here's the word of God and what God says and God speaking and saying, look, this truth that you are receiving, that you're hearing, that this salvation we have is by grace. It is a gift for those who believe. Nothing you have to earn. It is the truth. I stand behind this. And not only do I stand behind it and I say that every bit of it is true and this is my guarantee, but God is also saying, look, I'm not going to force anyone to believe. But if you do, I want you to understand that that choice, that act of faith will transform your life. Everything that your soul feels is missing will be found complete in God, in Christ. And God will welcome you into his family with open arms. Accept the gift and believe in me. So next week, um, my, uh, my brother, our fellow pastor, Richard Dubay, will be taking us and unveiling some of this, more of this mystery found in Ephesians 3, and that's how, how Paul and God talks about this idea of the Jews and Gentiles being reconciled in chapter 3. So it's going to be a mystery. So he's got next week, and that'll be pretty exciting and cool. The week after that, Pastor Vashi will be going through Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, you'll see me again for Ephesians chapter 5. Sorry about that. And then we'll close out with Stephen Freeman in chapter 6. It's going to be really, really cool. And I'm excited about you guys all jumping in being part. So let me close this out in prayer. And then we'll have Larry and Jackie come on up and give us some uh, closing thoughts. Lord Jesus, thank you so much.
Lord, actually, I don't even know if the words thank you are sufficient. I mean, I, I just, there's just nothing else that we have in our limited language that could possibly express how grateful and thankful we are for your love and faithfulness towards us, for your grace demonstrated through Jesus Christ on the cross and through the resurrection, O oh Lord. But we offer it nonetheless because we have nothing else in God. And we come before you with thanks, praise, with hearts of worship, and say, thank you, Lord, that you have given us this new, fantastic, transformative, unhindered relationship with you. And in return, we realize we're not obligated in anything, but we want to offer you all that we are in return. Thank you for the opportunity to take the next few weeks and go through this book of Ephesians and to be able to unveil some of the different truths that you've been sharing in it with us, God, and uh, to realize that every word we read, every idea that's captured just is designed to bring us more and more in awe of you. And I pray that that would be the result of our lives, that more and more so we would not take you for granted, but daily, moment by moment, to come before you in adoration and worship and praise for the God who has chosen to love us so much and so deeply. Thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence. I pray that you be with the saints, Lord, this week, this upcoming day. I mean, in every way, God, just allow us to continue to experience your grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen.